Does your work energize you? Does it make your impact on the world? Welcome to Start Anew, the show that looks beyond success into freedom, fulfillment, and your passion-driven career. Join your host, Sumbul Sang, for inspiring stories and bite-sized training to help you start anew with clarity. And now, here's Sumbul. Hey there, starters. Welcome to Motivation Monday on the Start A New Show. Every Motivation Monday, I interview inspiring individuals who have started anew in life with a new dream, a new vision, doing what they love, and sharing their gifts with the world. I hope that their incredible stories inspire you to start anew with clarity and confidence. In a moment, you and I will be joined by my guest, Ron Carucci. Ron was introduced to me by a mutual friend, Dory Clark, who suggested that Ron's story of transition from the world of Juilliard to corporate and consulting would be a great fit for the Start A New Show. And I can't agree more with Dory. There is an art and science to starting anew, and Ron has mastered it. And starters, you can learn from Ron and model him. In addition to being a dramaturg, Ron is the founder of a boutique consulting firm, Neverland. He has spent the last several years exploring his new passion of ushering in the next generation of leaders, and he's spoken around the world on topics pertaining to developing leaders of tomorrow. Ron is a thought leader and co-author of eight books, including Rising to Power. He contributes regularly to Forbes and Harvard Business Review, and he's featured everywhere, you name it, Fortune, Business Insider, CNBC, Bloomberg, to name a few. In part one of my interview, today, we unfold Ron's story of multiple career transformations. In part two of our interview, which goes on air on Wednesday, we get Ron to put his coaching hat on and share with us lessons learned from his career in leadership to help solopreneurs, small business owners like you. Now, without any further ado, let's get Ron on the show. Ron, hello, and welcome to the Start A New Show. Hello there, Symbol. So great to be with you. Thanks for having me. It is a privilege to have you on the show today, and I'm so excited to talk about some of the amazing stuff you do. But before we do that, please take us back in time to where your career started. Tell us what you were doing. I began earning money in the professional uh, arts field. Since I was 10, I worked in, I, I grew up outside New York City, and I worked in the commercial theater business. Um, and when I graduated high school, decided that I wanted to um, pursue that field, and so spent the early, very early part of my career uh, in performing arts. Uh, but I learned quickly after several years studying at Juilliard and New York University and working uh, on stage that I bored quickly, that while my friends were thrilled for the kinds of things I, got, I was getting to do, Inside, I had this burning sense of dread at the notion of having to do the same thing eight times a week. Um, and I learned probably by my early 20s that um, I wasn't going to be able to do that forever. 
I wasn't going to have the energy or passion um, to sustain that kind of commitment required for that career. And I needed to begin thinking about something differently. When I was uh, living and working in Europe, um, I had a wonderful experience that began to open my eyes to what it was that really brought me life and brought me uh, brought out my passion. I was doing a um, back and then in the mid 80s um, before the field of diversity and valuing differences was even a field. I was doing some work with the U.S. military and State Department. Um, the, the company that I work with had a contract there and we used multiple media including some performing arts media, to teach and train. And we were doing a workshop at, uh, of all places, Dachau, uh, the, the, the museum and concentration camp. And we had German civilians and U.S. military and government officials and East German officials in a room talking about a very difficult and sensitive topic around differences. And in the middle of the workshop, uh, a young American military uh, probably not much older than me at the time, um, got very emotional and through, through tears said, I, I'm just so tired of being trained to hate. And I was fascinated by his comment that the material had provoked that reflection in him. And so I wanted to pursue it. And so we began a conversation as part of the group about what that meant for all of them. Um, and I remained fascinated so much so that afterwards that evening, he and I went out uh, for a beer uh, because in Munich, that's a great thing to do. Um, and I think even that that early in my career, though I probably couldn't have articulated it then, I realized that presenting content from a front of a room or a stage was far less meaningful to me than engaging people in conversations about that content. And that began uh, the beginning of a very important shift in my career to not so much just using content to entertain or using content to even just provoke, but truly using content to transform. I, you know, I can articulate that now. I don't know that I could have articulated it then. I just knew I wanted to experience more of that. So when I came back to the United States, I changed careers. I found a career path that um, en enabled me to understand how to use variety of content to provoke and engage leaders and engage uh, organizations and communities in their own transformation. I think the more profound career transition for me came much later in life, however. Uh, after many, many years working inside corporations and organizations and large political structures uh, and being, <laughs> being jettisoned from three of them, my, my kids learned early on this very interesting term uh, that meant more time with dad. It was called severance package. <laughs> and uh, I, I seemed to be collecting quite a few of them. And, and the painful reality was that in order to provoke transformation inside corporations, you have to be honest. You have to tell the truth. You have to bring forth what's really so and get people to engage in the truth about what's happening in order to be able to aim them at something better. And I learned very naively and I learned very painfully that companies don't always want that. And, uh, and I, I, I couldn't give up on the dream. I couldn't give up on the notion that you have to be able to engage honestly to get fundamental change. People, individuals, teams, communities are hungry for transformational experiences to become more and better in all of who they're meant to be. And if you can't tell the truth, you, can't, you can only have cosmetic change. And so 
the, the more profound career change for me came when I realized the only way I was going to wi- able, be able to work with organizations on transformational journeys was not from inside them, but from outside them as a partner with them. And so I left the world of big corporations to go and start my own company uh, to do that because uh, I, that was a dream I wasn't w- willing to give up on, um, even if it meant not being able to do it inside companies. So I think uh, – a couple of interesting hairpin turns there in my career that I hope uh, we can unpack for your readers and listeners. Let's go back to that moment in time in Munich. This young officer planted a seed in your mind that you wanted to have conversations that brought about transformations. Now, you have this insight and a desire to do that, but you're still in a different career at that time. So tell us a little bit about what you had to do to actually transition from one career to another. So when I got back to the United States symbol, I learned that there was a field um, called uh, leadership development and organization development where the science and psychology of change was brought into community, was brought into um, organizational work. And that was great news to me. That was an entire field devoted to the development and construct of content and relationship uh, fused together to bring about planned and desired change. And I was thrilled to learn that that this thing I had discovered was actually a profession. <laughs> and so I began to shift my career. I, I went back to school and got uh, a graduate degree. I found I was able to position my resume and tell my career story at that point, which was very, very young. I was still in my early to mid-20s. But I was able to tell a story in a way that convinced hiring managers to give me a chance to let me use the skills I had to do um, entry-level work in the field. And was very privileged and very fortunate to have some early bosses and mentors and and an organization that allowed for the development of my skills, that allowed me to, to sort of experiment and try things and bring benefit to the company while still learning a lot. So I was very, very fortunate. Uh, early on that I got to ha- to do that. You bring out a really good point that uh, you went back to college and got a graduate degree, which helped you um, with your career transition. And uh, that's, that's something that a lot of people who are thinking about starting a new career um, have to do uh, or think about doing. So tell us about the, a little bit about the first role you you got after your uh, graduate degree in your new career, and did it did it help? Did it really fulfill your desire? You know, it's an interesting question, Simba, and I get asked this all the time by executives who are looking to change their careers. And uh, you know, I I went back to school after I got the job. I, my, I was able to use my experience and my undergraduate. Um, my final undergraduate degree was in communications. I didn't, I transitioned, you know, uh, my majors even before I finished. So my major wasn't in performing arts. Um, and I was able to, because I had some experience doing training and doing, um, educational work and, um, organizational work at the firm I had been at, I was able to translate that into some good interviews and, and, um, into some very, uh, into a very entry level, um, role. So it was during my years at my first company where I went, I went, I chose to go back to school and get a credential, um, believing that, um, it would advance my career. 
You know, that was back in the late 80s uh, and early 90s, um, where I think academic credentials were looked upon very differently than they are today. Um, and, and whenever my um, I, I talk to a lot of executives who want to leave corporate America or leave big companies and go and become consultants or go and become try and translate their thought leadership into a new way to earn money. And the first question I'm asked is, should I go back and get a degree? Should I go back and get a doctorate? And I'm always reticent to immediately say yes, because I don't always believe that depending on where you're at in your career, that the academic world and a credential from it is the best way to cultivate your talent. Often, I mean, and I taught graduate school for 15 years in some great universities. Um, sometimes the academic world can be a bit removed from the realities of workplace skills and requirements. And so it's a very, today, unlike it was 20-something years ago, it's a very expensive decision and prospect for people to consider. Now, I think in other parts of the world where you have um, education that, that's free, it's a different kind of decision. And I think it really depends on the field and how important credentials are and credentialing. I don't know that the learning and cultivation of skill and an academic credential always A, correlate, or B, are causal. <laughs> um, and so the, my first advice to people before going back to get a formal degree is, are there other ways you can get the training? Are there other ways you can get the skills? Are you other, other ways you're able to demonstrate competence um, besides a credential? Because I, I think a hiring manager today, if they're choosing between a credential and demonstrated skill, even in an adjacent field, they're probably going to want the demonstrated skill. For some companies, it may be different. But I think today, uh, it's a, you know, for your listeners, I think it's a very important intersection because the commitment to go back and get a graduate degree or another um, academic credential is a very big one and can be a very expensive one. And so I wouldn't do it lightly. Back then, it was different. And frankly, the company that I was with paid for it. Oh, nice. Um, and so I was very blessed to have that experience. Um, so I, you know, I, I think if there are, the, and, and today with online content and online universities and other, so many avenues of wonderful, rich content available in so many fields, um, I think people are choosing um, to get that development and get that learning in many other ways besides the academic arena. And companies are very grateful to have it. Absolutely. This reminds me of something I read recently along the lines of information is free, implementation is hard. But that is the reality of the world today. So for, for young people who are they're not sure about what they really want to do with their lives in terms of their career, they might want to become entrepreneurs, they might want to work for big companies. But you know how it is when you're 18, 19, you don't really know what you want to do with your life. Do you think starting that journey with an undergraduate degree is still the right step to take? I have two children in college. <laughs> I have a lot of um, people that I have mentored th through that season. So I, I appreciate the, the difficulty of the question. And what I told my children and I tell a lot of uh, folks at that time of their, their life is, I do think today college is the new high school. And so I do think that a grad, an undergraduate degree really is the, the entry-level way to get access to better jobs. C companies are still saying that level of training is a bare minimum. So I do think that um, it is important. Now, you know, m my daughter 
uh, believed that she's supposed to know exactly what she's supposed to do and what her career is going to be before she graduates. And I <laughs> told her, oh, oh, darling, no, you're not. And, and if you and if you did believe you knew, I'd be scared because I, because I think today folks at that age, they don't they, they, what I tell them is you have to know your opening move. And that's all. You know, for the next 30 years, you're going to probably change careers, much less jobs, five to seven times, according to what the research says. And three of those careers don't even exist yet. So what you have to know is what do you want your opening move to be? And I think I based it on two or three very different things. First of all, what do you what brings you life? What truly brings you desire? What makes your heart beat? Um, now, many career advice thinkers today are, are saying, don't follow your passions, follow your skills which I think is the other half of the equation. What are you good at? Where have you shown proclivity? Where have you shown natural um, talent that you want to go, go cultivate? And so what I've told my daughter is, your job is to be obedient to follow the breadcrumbs. She has a very clear skill set. She has a very clear sense of what she loves to do and how she loves to have impact in the world. And I said, your job is to be obedient and curious in these four years to find out why you're good at certain things, how to cultivate them, to find the faculty mentors and the coursework that can continue to cultivate those skills and to continue to apply them in ways, in internships and volunteering, and to learn. And each step of the way that you cultivate more of that skill, <coughs> explore more of that desire, and see it applied in real life will teach you more about that opening move. And that's all you're required to do in your undergraduate degrees. I think so many folks go into their undergraduate world you know, because they were told you're going to be a doctor, you're going to be an engineer, you're going to be a veterinarian, or you, you, know, you love this, go do this. And I think that's so foolish because I don't know how you could possibly know in a world that's so full of information and so full of opportunities with careers changing by the day, fields emerging by the day, and you know what? Fields closing down by the day. You know, with artificial intelligence and artificial automation, you have all kinds of jobs going away. And so I think... The most, the most important thing a young person has to do is be true and honest about the desires of their heart and do the work to, you know, and there's impulses are different than desire, right? I mean, a lot of kids have impulses. They want to go follow an instinct, but truly deep down explore what makes your heart beat. And secondly, to be honest about the talents and skills you have cultivated and to be a good steward of those and develop them more. I think if you do those two things and find ways to apply them in real life, whether it's volunteers or internships or even entry-level jobs, while you're getting your credential, that's the best way to begin to understand how the world of, your, of what you're passionate about, what you desire, what you're really good at, unique at, can come to life in a career. Uh, I love what you just said about young people should spend some time getting to know their passions and talents and skills what they're good at this is all of this is part of becoming self-aware and i truly believe that self-awareness is the starting point to any kind of transformation in life and speaking of self-awareness starters download your free self-awareness guide from any page on the website at letstartanew.com. So Ron, I love how you advised your daughter to be obedient and curious. And looking back, I realized that I was obedient, but I wasn't curious because I started a degree with this view that this is what I'm going to end up doing for the rest of my life because this is the degree that I am, I am studying, which was computer science. And so I checked curiosity at the door. And this is the premise of the show, to have these conversations with people like you who have successfully 
transformed their careers many times over so that those who are struggling in their careers, who are in careers that are unfulfilling for them, they can learn from our stories. My daughter knew when she graduated high school, she wasn't ready for college. And so she took a year off and she went to Ethiopia to spend a year working in Ethiopia um, in a very difficult and challenging environment where she had to take her proclivity for leadership and creativity and her passion and love for the marginalized and the victimized and put them together. And she had a most amazingly formative year learning things she could have never learned in a classroom, experiencing things she could have never understood from a classroom point of view. And when she came back after that year, then she was ready for college. And I think those are Taking a gap year and taking a uh, a year between those things sometimes, uh, as long as you commit to going when you come back, to go and try something, to go and experience the world in practical ways, not to go travel and you know relax and play, but I mean to go do real work, I think can be a, is a wonderful tool and solution to kids who may not be ready for college life after high school. Let's go back into your story to this time you're talking about when you're in the corporate world and you said something along the lines of not feeling very fulfilled and being limited by that environment. Part of doing great transformational work is doing diagnostic work. It means doing good assessment of, of what's happening and what's really true and being honest about shortfalls, about being honest about not being able to achieve certain goals about failure. And so many corporations um, don't want the truth. And so you see, you know, the, especially the higher up you get in organizations, there's no shortage of people who will tell you what you want to hear. And um, my job, I believed what I was being hired for was to bring about change, was to bring about plan change to help an organization more, be more efficient, to execute against the strategy, to develop its leaders, to create stronger teams, um, but in order to do that, you have to tell the truth. Um, and, you know, I had to learn the hard way sometimes that diplomacy was important. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes I had a little bit of an edge about the way I would tell the truth. And I, you know, wasn't intentionally being judgmental. But, uh, but sometimes I get frustrated when it looked like a leader that had asked me for help was trying to cover up or minimize or soft, soften over um, the truth about what was happening. And I knew that was going to prevent him or her from getting what they wanted. Um, I, remember, I remember one, one <laughs> painful moment where we were working with a large technology company. I was, in, I was an insider and the, it, was, it was a technology company. And so you could imagine the, as a computer science major, you know, the IT professionals inside a computer science company are like the Navy SEALs. Um, and this organization was being run by, you know, um, uh, uh, somebody of different cultural differences and um, was harsh and had what had a reputation for being not a very good leader. But 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 the performance of the organization was suffering because of this the, the struggle in this organization. He had surrounded himself with people who told him what he wanted to hear, protected him. So we collected a bunch of data. We did a survey. We did, a, um, you know, some interviews and. In the middle of uh, a meeting with his top 80 leaders of his organization, we were going through the data. And at the aggregate level, you know, there was a graph with all these bar, you know, bar charts. And on the dimension of integrity, the bar dipped a little bit. <laughs> now, statistically, at the aggregate level, you know, that, that you might not think that's so significant. But, of course, if you broke it down by different groups, the integrity bar really had a lot of variance. And I, I think people knew what it meant. Well, this one woman, uh, who clearly was one of his protectors, um, 
stood up and started to berate me and the data. You know, saying, well, what was your R factor and your R value? Where was your T scores? Um, how much reliability and validity was done behind these statistics? How can we say this is any kind of meaningful difference in this data? How can we attach meaning here when we don't know if statistically this data is right? <laughs> Show me your regression analyses. Show me the T tests. And I said, the truth. well, so I said, you know what? Let me give you a, a brief explanation of how the statistics were done. But let's test your theory that it doesn't mean anything. So I said to the room, by a show of hands, how many of you in this room have never lied to someone else in this room? And nobody raised their hands. So I said to her, so I said to her, I think we all know what the data is saying. Well, that didn't win me any friends. <laughs> um, and, I, you know, my goal wasn't to publicly shame her. But I but the fact that the they were suggesting the data didn't have integrity was frustrating for me and my team. And they all knew that it meant something. Um, and, you know, probably a year after that, uh, I earned my third severance package. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, I want to engage with organizations, Symbol, that are willing to say, yeah, this is, this, is, this is a painful mirror to look in, but we have to if we want change. And from an inside a company, that's very difficult. You're in a political landscape. You're in a political set of constructs. You're an insider. And, you know, the ancient history says it's very difficult to be a prophet in your own land. Um, and I found that sadly to be true. I think it's changed in 20 or 30 years. But back then, in the, in the mid-90s, um, it, it was difficult. And I think that was then that I realized, you know what, if I really want to provoke this kind of change and health, I'm going to have to do it as an outsider. So I went and started my own practice uh, right after that assignment. Um, and after about a year, I realized, wow, I, I, I was surprised that I was actually earning money. I was doing well and I was paying the bills and I had two young children. And I, but I realized that for me to do this, this was something I could do forever. This was something I could, you know, continue. It was anything but boring. It was different every day. Um, but I needed, there was more I needed to learn. There was more I needed to experience if I wanted to influence the top of the organization, the true gatekeepers and leaders. And so I took my practice and I sold it to um, a boutique consulting firm in New York City that was sort of the Rolls Royce of my field. It was sort of the preeminent place to be. It worked with enterprise leadership. And I knew that if I went there, I could learn a lot about the thing I aspired to do, which was to influence um, community level, enterprise level change. And I spent eight wonderful years there um, they were hard years. There were a lot of things to learn, a lot of painful moments, but but good years. And at the end of that, that firm was sold. It was acquired by a much larger firm. And of course, that, then it began to feel like I was inside a, a corporation again. You know, it was about revenue generation and management and all the things I didn't value about being an insider. And so a, a colleague of mine and I decided we can still have this dream. We can still do what we love to do as outsiders, we can just go start our own firm. And so we left and built our own firm, uh, continuing the dream of doing a, being a small community of practitioners that really care about each other and, and care about the impact we have on the world. Uh, and now 12 years later, uh, we've been doing it ever since. And we've had a wonderful 12 years. And uh, <laughs> a few years ago, we did a little bit of rebranding and I actually had our new logo tattooed on my leg. Uh, wow. A small one. Wow. A small one, as a, as, as a symbol to say, uh, 
this is where I want to finish. This is the finish line. I don't want to go work for another big company. I don't want to, this is what I want to do. And you're who I want to do it with. Um, and I, I, at this point, symbol, honestly, if someone ever said, could you go back inside and do this work as an insider again? Honestly, I think I'd rather say, welcome to Walmart. Can I get you a cart? Um, <laughs> I, I, I just, don't, I don't know if I could do it. I don't know if at this point I have the constitution to be able to go. I mean, I see the clients we partner with, the organizations we join forces with as insiders, as the outside version to go do transformation. And I look at them and I think, God bless you for doing what you're doing. I, I couldn't do it. And I certainly don't think I could do it now. Um, but I think it just, just goes to show you that there are different strokes for different folks. And I think um, some folks are wired that way and can do that well with integrity. Um, some folks need to be a little bit removed from those epicenters uh, in order to be able to positively influence them. And I think that's, I had to figure out that's who I was. Ron, tattooing your company logo to yourself tells me a lot about you. It tells me how happy you are doing what you do, it tells me how passionate you are and how committed you are to doing what you do. And that's I mean, that's what we all aspire to, isn't it? To, to find the sweet spot in our careers where we're making money doing what we love. And you've certainly seem to have found that sweet spot. Congratulations on that. Oh, well, thank you so much. Very kind of you to say. I think, um, you know, I think I, 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 there's not a day that goes by that I, I don't realize how fortunate and blessed that I am that I get to do this. We just have one of our, we have a, we, we gather as a whole firm a couple of times a year. We just came back uh, we were uh, um, on a lake in Georgia together as a firm and we played together and we had fun together and we got up early one morning, went to the local town and, um, you know, the, uh, fill, filled the cars from a soup, from a food pantry and filled food boxes to feed the hungry there. And, and, and we're, we're a wonderful community and we know that, and we know that we're very fortunate to be together. And, um, I, there's not a day that goes by that I'm not aware that there are many who are longing for this experience. And, um, I think what most people, uh, which is why I was so excited to do your show, because I think what, what I think you can help people with understand is that it's hard work. I mean, to make the choices and sacrifices to aim at what you most desire, you know, I, I think the world has really been dishonest in some cases about just follow your passion and the money will follow. You see these bumper stickers all the time and it's just not true. It's just not true. Um, just follow your passion and do all the hard work and sacrifices and be perseverant and determined and build your skill and differentiate yourself and then the money can follow. But people don't talk about the hard work it takes to take a hairpin turn in your life. And, and then not to mention the courage, right? It takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of risk net, risk taking. And if you're somebody that is, you know, in your late twenties, early thirties or mid thirties, um, and you now have a spouse or you now have children or you now have a mortgage or you now have obligations in your life that make that risk that much more profound. Um, it's even harder. And so I think sometimes the world has done a little bit of a disservice when they've taken the content you're trying to share with your listeners and uh, shorthanded it with sound bites that make it sound like it's this primrose tiptoe through the fields. Just be happy and just be passionate and just like something so much and um, you'll be famous on the internet and you'll have a million followers and people, people will be paying you to advertise on your website and, you know, and all be well. And I think, you know, you know, it, that's not how it goes. 
Um, and I think it's, it's, it's why I hope your listeners are starting early in their career, but it's never too late. It doesn't matter how old you are, where you're at. You can make that, you can turn the Queen Mary, you can turn that ship. Um, and you just have to be honest about what it's going to take and how long it could take and what it will require of you. Um, and just put your nose to the grind and get after it. Um, and I do believe if you do persevere, you will discover, um, the work of your, you know, that you were born to do. Um, and I think we, we, when we work with executives who are in their mid to late forties, who clearly have been, have gone stale, they've gone stagnant. They've just kind of gotten, they're just coasting. We, we have a process of reinvention and we call it stories from the future. And we engage the leaders in, in, in writing stories from five years from now about, and we give them outlines and specific psychological constructs. So they can't, they have to be honest and we make them write stories and then we create laboratories for them to go experiment. So we actually work with our clients on very specific processes that help begin the process of making that turn. So you're not just, you know, making impulsive decisions to sell all, sell all your goods and sell your houses and go up into a coffee shop and, you know, Tahiti. But, but really being honest and thoughtful about what would be a great choice for you. And if you spent 30 years or 20 years or 15 years doing something, you shouldn't expect to be able to think about what's next in 20 minutes, right? And so we think it's, we think it's worth, you know, let's spend the next year. Let's spend the next 12 months while you're in this job and, 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 and it's dreaming about what's next, but dreaming in an, a very practical way. Let's do some research. Let's get some data about you. Let's, let's find out what your DNA who you are as a human being is wired to really do. Let's see if we can wake up some desires you buried. L let's test the future uh, in some scenarios that allow you to discover, you know, where do you dream about having impact? Where do you dream about um, using your talents and skills? Um, what could sustain you for act two of your career? And doing very purposeful work to discover that so that after a year, you now have a body of knowledge, a body of insights, a body of experiments that can launch you, launch you thoughtfully and um, judiciously, uh, not without risk and not without requiring courage, but judiciously into chapter two uh, without just leaping off a pier. You know, I tell my clients, you can't leap a 10-foot cavern in two five-foot jumps, uh, and which means if you're going to leap in 10 feet, you better be trained and prepared to hit the other side running. Love that. Ron, thank you for sharing your story with us and unpacking the lessons for our listeners. Starters, if you persevere, you will discover the work that you were meant to do.